0: Hello, everybody. Mark Carlson here, SNIA Technical Council Co-Chair. Welcome to the SDC Podcast. Every week, the SDC Podcast presents important technical topics to the storage developer community. Each episode is hand-selected by the SNIA Technical Council from the presentations at our annual Storage Developer Conference. The link to the slides is available in the show notes at snea.org slash podcasts. You are listening to STC Podcast, episode number 178.
1: Okay, welcome everyone. This is uh, our 335 talk. We'll be talking about uh, key IO, fine gain, fine grain encryption for storage. So uh, my name is Frederick Knight. I'm from NetApp, and we have Festus from Solidyne. Uh, we'll be uh, telling you about this topic this afternoon. Festus is going to start. He's going to uh, share about some of the key operation and some of the uh, information about the, the encryption part of it. And I'll be talking about the NVMe interfaces to uh, how this stuff is all going to work. So uh, Festus, and he'll get uh, started here.
2: Thanks, Fred. Um, so as Fred touched on, uh, we'll start with the, uh, just an overview of the evolution of uh, data arrest protection schemes. And then we'll actually get, get us into KeepRio architectural components, and we'll look at the benefits. But more importantly, we'll look at the latest updates that TCG Storage work Group have been making towards the standardization of, uh, of KeepRio. Uh, once we get through that, uh, Fred will introduce uh, various key player use case and then uh, how NV- NVMe interface is being modified to support this. All right, so to start, um, um, most of you are already familiar with uh, general approaches toward uh, on, dev- on storage devices, uh, their REST protection scheme. Uh, you generally have uh, some media encryption uh, media um, encryption keys uh, generated by the device um, that are then used to encrypt uh, or decrypt uh, user data, right? is being written to NAND or uh, being read out of NAND. So that's the general building block. And on top of that, some of the uh, recent technology like OPPO, they've been built to add the layer of authentication to try to tie those media encryption keys uh, which are generated by the device to uh, some outside password user password. Um, so that's you know general how the data arrest protection work in today devices. Uh, so that works well, um, especially for use case where you have a contiguous range of LBA on storage device and you want to associate that with a particular key and tie that to some user supply password. But as you can see on the left, it creates challenges if the number of your ranges increase, because it means you have to manage more keys on the device. Which you know, as the number of keys increases, uh, now you have a more complicated scheme on how you protect those keys on the search device, and that makes the the search device itself more of a an appealing target for theft. Uh, Fundamentally, because your keys are there and the data stays there. So one of the things we've been trying to explore in TCG is figuring out ways we can um, uh, improve on our architecture. Maybe provide ways, um, for, especially for use cases that may be comfortable with uh, dealing with the key management of the keys themselves. Provide a, some sort of an interface and method that they can inject keys into a storage device and leverage those keys to perform uh, on-device user data encryption. Um, So with the idea of uh, externally managing media encryption keys, it it introduced some excellent benefit uh, in terms of now you can, instead of associating um, a range of ALBAs on device with one key, you can actually associate higher level uh, object with keys. For instance, one set of key can be associated with uh, object across different devices instead of the old architecture where um, you have only some LBAs that can be entirely coupled with one key. Uh, but that also means, you know, if you can manage uh, media encryption keys externally, it means you can crypto erase at a higher level, not just at uh, LBA range level, you can crypto erase at a uh, object level that means be spending multiple uh, storage uh, device appliances um, with external management of keys uh, it obviously simplifies uh, the um, your, your, your key management implementation of device since you don't own the keys um, so the audit process that eric talked about earlier becomes a lot more simpler since you don't have the keys Uh, So, these are some of the key benefits that KeePRIO at a high level provides. Um, There are not, um, that you cannot, at least some of this, obviously the flexibility exists if you do software encryption. But, you know, this tries to extend that layer down into the storage device. Um, So, at high level, the way KeePRIO operates, you basically have some, uh, you have a lay in the middle, so let's say, call that a key-prior host management application. Um, that's sort of man- um, um, try to relay the keys that may be owned by a particular application, uh, try to relay those keys into the storage device, and then select those keys to perform um, uh, user data encryption on the device. Um, so in that example, we have, say, you have... Uh, you know, uh, you'll keep our application talking to some key manager. In this instance, uh, let's assume a key management service that may be hosted by some server. You has to generate some keys or retrieve some keys, and that uh, key management service uh, external, obviously, to the SSD um, may go ahead, create those keys, and send it back to the application, and the application will then inject those keys into the SSD and then within SSD, obviously, the keys could be populated in the SSD controller key cache for subsequent I/O usage. So that's kind of the high-level um, uh, model of how key parity operates. In the storage work group, uh, we've been you know, basically taking this this model and trying to find various architectural, uh, even protocol elements, that would be needed to support uh, something like this. So the Um, There's also the NVMe component, we'll get into that, uh, where we get into details, various architectural elements that are being uh, added to NVMe command set to be able to support uh, the key selection per, you know, uh, namespace. Um, From a TCG perspective, the protocol layering that we envision today is uh, uh, for key management, we Right now, we we're gonna for version 1, we'll start with KMIP. Uh, KMIP is a fairly um, uh, common key management protocol that allows exchange of keys between some uh, host application and some key managers. Um, but then from a, um, uh, from a uh, host to the storage perspective, uh, we're going to have a couple of different protocols. One is what most of you are really familiar with, Uh, using a security send and receive to do some basic uh, activation of the key pio as an ASP like we have all for today. So you have that. That's not going to change in terms of, um, you know, setting up which authorities are allowed to perform uh, different configuration options. Uh, The new thing we're adding is obviously the interface to the KMAP protocol. So we're looking... uh, uh, to have a KMIP uh, protocol, the request message protocol, um, as a payload for tcg compacket. So this at least keeps existing software stack that manages all uh, the same, uh, while allowing uh, quick integration with KMIP without introducing some of the older TCG problems, like sessions. Um, so you know, as you can see, this is a quick, there's, it's a stateless protocol, uh, basically just strictly designed uh, to inject keys into the storage device. Um, You then have, obviously, on the NVMe side, um, you have extension to NVMe commands to support selecting keys, and then TCG will still use protocol 2, security protocol 2 to do things like a TCG-specific reset, uh, but also to do uh, things like uh, clearing of keys in, in a particular key slots. So that's a uh, how therefore what the protocol uh, layering will be look, will look like once uh, the standard comes out. From a um, key injection perspective, uh, we actually we deal with an interesting set of problems here. Um, I want to get in getting through this a little bit. Um, so one thing we when we started, we were one of the the question we had was, you know, when you inject the key when you try to protect the keys, do you protect them from the key origination point, from the you know the entity that owns the key, all the way to the storage device, or do you protect the keys from, or do you trust the key by your host management application and protect the keys from that application to the storage device? Um, as you can see, one of the decisions we made is basically to um, uh, consider the interaction between the key manager, the entity that holds the keys, to the, uh, the the host application that's managing uh, various storage devices, those interactions are out of scope. Or will be out of scope with this standard, mainly because we, you know, th- there may be some use cases where that application. will want to know, um, you know, a key with this key ID. I want it to be in a particular namespace. So they may want to get some metadata on the keys, therefore enforcing a stricter um, uh, traffic. Uh, encryption from all the way uh, to the key manager to the, uh, to the namespace, uh, it may create some complications with those use cases. So for version 1, the first thing we did was to um, focus on the interaction between the key prior host management application and uh, the actual SSD element. So since there are many technologies that deal with the uh, transport security, Uh, The first, we built a couple options. One was basically just to rely on those um, uh, technology like SPDM, secure sessions, or PCI-ADE since they give you full end-to-end link encryption between your host and SSD traffic. Then key priority traffic doesn't need to add any more you know, complexity. can just leverage those existing transport and send down the keys. So from the protocol perspective, the keys, you know, at least the first uh, provisioning, uh, the key encryption keys you're sending, uh, they're in plain text, but in practice, they're not since obviously, they're leveraging the protection provided by things like SPDM or, or PCI-IDE. Subsequent key update, though, uh, the standard obviously provides ways to perform authenticated key updates using uh, a new state ESGCM uh, since Uh, There you can add some integrity uh, protection on the ciphertext in addition to confidentiality. So the first set of keys you inject is basically, it's keys that you pre-share that will help authenticate the next set of keys. Don't you have to have a specific bit strength on the wrapping key? Don't they have to be a higher bit strength than on the wrapping? Well, the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. The, so the question is asking: Is uh, uh, the security strength of the wrapping keys it has, does it have to be higher than uh, the, the keys themselves that they're wrapping? Very good question. For um, uh, I believe we're considering a 256 across the board for you know, the wrapping keys, uh, also a uh, media encryption key. So that should meet the security strength for uh, for the wrapping keys and uh, the, the data themselves—they're encrypted by the uh, keys wrapped by the wrapping keys. Does that help answer the question? <laughs> oh. <laughs> sorry. So, um, uh, so, you know, for for yeah, the, the first, uh, sorry, the the first set of keys, um, as, as I mentioned, is you you set them up so you can use to authenticate the next set of keys. Uh, for the next set, of, the, the, um, the other option we have, and all these are host configurable, um, you know, we, we, we looked at use case where you may not have um, these um, link protection technologies available. You know, I'm not sure how many vendors have already uh, link encryption shipping today or support for SPDM secure session. So for those use case, uh, we provide an option to use an nest key transport at least for provisioning of the first set of keys, um, but then subsequent key updates, you can use Symmetric, KES, uh, uh, GCM. Um, in, in this option, the assumption is that the device can pre-provisioned, the storage device can pre-provisioned with some sort of uh, public key certificates. You can then use the certificate to set up uh, the key transport algorithm. Um, the way it will work basically, the host application pulls the certificate from the device, um, and then use the public key register the certificate with the key manager, and then it can then tell the key manager to use that certificate to encrypt um, uh, whatever key encryption key wants to send down, and can just relay that to the source device. Um, in this um, setup of the first keys, one of the Future work we're considering is, um, it, it, you know, as I briefly touched on, our current options they target the, you know, uh, the protection of keys from the host application uh, to the source de- to the source device. But there are use cases where you may want to establish end-to-end protection of a key. So for example, if the key is owned by a user who sits on top of that application, you want to protect the keys from that I use all the way to the, uh, to the namespace. Um, in addition to that, we've heard from um, uh, some of the feedback we've gotten is that not everyone wants those key encryption keys to persist on a storage device. Um, some use case will want basically uh, the device to not have access to any of the keys uh, when it loses power. So that's the concept of ephemeral keys. Uh, we've been uh, we've been looking to uh, to figure out exactly how it will work. Uh, the idea is that you still want to be able to establish the protection of the keys, but still allowing um, the the intermediate layer to be able to dictate which namespace will consume you know which keys. Um, so this will probably not make it in a, it's not going to make it in a version 1.0, but in subsequent versions. Um, so once you've established your first keys, we say the key encryption keys, you can view them as a, the authentication keys. You then go to establishing the media encryption keys. So these are the keys that are going to be used for uh, user data protection. Um, so for these keys, the, the idea is that they can only be provisioned by the entity uh, that provisioned the authentication key. So these will all be sent down encrypted using the previously provisioned Uh, key encryption keys or authentication keys. Obviously, it's very important that you have the integrity guarantees of the ciphertext for MEX. Since they are used for um, encryption of user data, you want to make sure that the keys you're using, they haven't been tampered with. At least if they've been tampered with, we should be able to detect that before uh, those keys are accepted. one of the main properties of KeyPio is that the media encryption keys then never exist on a storage device once it lose power. Um, so on every boot, the host will basically have to re-authenticate uh, by supplying MEX, again, protected by uh, previously provisioned authentication keys. Uh, the other property that's nice that we baked in in a version version.1 is the ability to support uh, replay protection. As you imagine, if I have an analyzer sitting on a traffic and record the previously inserted keys, it can just replay and get access to the data, right? Uh, so having a replay protection is just to make sure that every time a key is inserted, that we have a, a quick challenge test to be able to, to tell that um, the keys that are being injected are fresh, not old copies that have been previously injected. So this will come as well in a... In the version one. Uh, so I think at high level for in, you know for key provisioning schemes, uh, and, and this is what uh, you can uh, you can expect to see at least in the in version one. Any any questions before we jump into the uh, interface interactions? Um, yeah, Mike has a, a good question that um, we kept uh, mentioning transport uh, security protocols like PCIe, IDE, or SPDM secure sessions. I was wondering, uh, you know, what that means for PCI, uh, for fabrics, right? I think um, it's a very good question, and that, that inspired the, that option, second option. We need an option that doesn't rely on either SPDM secure session or PCI-IDE, something that's native to the protocol that can provide the, the link protection. And that's what our option two is. OK, uh, thank you.
1: So just to elaborate a little bit on uh, mike's question there about fabrics that we do have authentication and um tls types of uh, protocols we have fcsp so there are ways to secure the transports uh, for some of those fabric environments So. so basically the the use case for a uh, key per I.O. is to be able to do much more fine-grain control. That The methods we have with uh, self-encrypting drives today are either for the entire drive or for predefined LBA ranges. And so that makes it hard for the application to be able to make sure that their data goes in a particular range of LBAs so that it gets encrypted with the appropriate key. So the idea here is that each I.O. operation, each read command, each write command, gets to select its own key that is unique for that data. So here's what that might look like. We have our our green tenant, our yellow tenant, our blue tenant, and our purple tenant. And each of their data is being encrypted with their own key uh, before it's stored out on the media so that... They don't have to worry about where it goes using the existing uh, SED technologies that that TCG has provided. So they can then all be mixed uh, out on that volume, and you can more easily control uh, the coming and going of that data. Uh, You can erase the data and get rid of it, because just by getting rid of the key, it it makes it virtually impossible to, uh, to be able to get that data back in its original form. So a couple places where this uh, might be implemented, uh, if we have some uh, specific machines, uh, the tenants on the left are green, yellow, and red tenant, and they send some operations to an array controller out in the fabric, the array controller could then have its own KMIP database that keeps track of each of those connections to ensure that each tenant has its own data encrypted and stored securely so that if somebody wants to securely obliterate one of those tenants, they don't have to go find all of the data that is associated with that tenant and scrub it somehow. They can just delete the key out of the KMIP database. They can delete the key out of each of those SSDs. And all of a sudden, all of the data for that tenant is gone without disturbing any of the other data for any of the other tenants. But right now, to be able to do that, you have to do it with the whole drive, or the array has to have previously divided up those LBAs into some fixed LBA ranges. So you can do the same thing in virtual machines, where each virtual machine gets its own uh, key associated with it. It goes through the hypervisor, and the the, the data kept, keeps its association with that key, and now it's stored out on uh, whatever device... Uh, is being written to, and so again, to get rid of any one of those individual machines, those virtual machines, you just have to get rid of the key that was being used by that machine. So there's several different other ways that this can be put to use. This just happens to be two of the common use cases. So to operate with this, the system is gonna have to do some, some discovery just like it does with any feature of a device. It's going to have to figure out how many key tags are available. So the key tag is the thing that's used with the I.O. You say, I want to use key number one, key number 10, key number 100. That's the key tag. So each I.O. doesn't have to pack an extra 512 bytes worth of key as part of the I.O. It's the key tag that references the key. So then the key gets stored separately in the device, and the Appropriate key is then the the associated key with that key tag is what gets used. So the host has to know how many of those a device can support. Sometimes different encryption algorithms have uh, different requirements on the amount of data that they're encrypting, and so there are maybe some granularity and alignment requirements that are going to be associated with different algorithms, and the host is going to need to know that. So some of this is obtained through the NVMe identify commands and some of this is obtained through the TCG discovery commands. The security protocol send to request the information and the security protocol receive to get the result back to be able to determine what the capabilities are that the device supports. So the first step Uh, establishing the key encryption keys. Uh, Festus talked about that, that that's the negotiation that happens uh, between the host and the device to get the key encryption keys there. And there's a couple of ways that that can be happened that he talked about. And then the media encryption keys have to be inserted. And the key encryption keys are the things that are used to protect that. So we have a couple of different uh, protocol-specific ways that the transports protect that information through either the, some of the PCI mechanisms, through some of the fabric uh, encryption mech- mechanisms, uh, having a TLS channel established from the between the host and the, the storage device. So the media encryption keys get injected using the TCG security send command so that the device can learn what the keys are. So here we have a very limited device. This device has looks like seven key tag slots in its key cache. Now, hopefully, nobody's gonna build a device this small. We expect the smallest ones will probably be at least in the hundreds, maybe thousands of keys that will be supported by the device. But this key tag value is a 16-bit value, so it's possible that there can be 65,000 keys within the device at any given point in time. And since that's all backed by a KMIP database, There can be millions of keys, hundreds of millions of keys, however large your KMIP database can grow to support all of those keys, and they can be staged through the cache on an as-needed basis. So in this case, we've got these seven key tags. There's their key tag number, and there's a 256-bit key that's been inserted into the key cache that's associated with that key tag. Now, you can see here uh, these Media encryption keys aren't very creative. Um, They're sort of sequential, just so it's kind of easy to see that they're different and and you can tell um, that they're there. So we've got different key tags. We've got uh, seven different values that the host can reference as it's going to be sending its IOs. So we've injected these keys and we've started using some of them. And the host determines that it hasn't quite accurately predicted, or maybe the the load has changed, and it needs to change what's in the cache. Just like any cache, the host is now managing this on a least recently used mechanism, and it's going to kick out the ones that it doesn't need. And in this case, you see it's kept uh, kept the first two there, the EF and the E0, but it's had to change some of the ones after that and it's injected some new keys into those key tags. So we've got a KMIP database that has all of these extra keys in it that can't fit in the device at any one point in time, so we have to stage through them as we need them to do our different IOs. So in particular, the commands in NVMe that need to be aware of this are any command that's going to do I.O. So the compare command, it's got a, be able to make sure that the data can, can get decrypted to be compared. The copy command, it's, it's going to have to decrypt the data, copy the data, and then re encrypt it again. The so verify, read, write, writing zeros. You know, why do you need an encryption key on write zeros? Well, if you didn't, then every would be able to tell what data with zeros and it wouldn't be protected. So all of the right zeros are gonna make it look like something different depending on the encryption key. And the zone append command for ZNS devices because that's an additional way to to get data written. So here we have our key tag database, which has the keys in it and we're gonna be using some of those key tags to write some data to our device. So here's an example sequence where we've issued a write command. We're writing out to LBA 100. We're gonna write eight blocks. And we're gonna use key tag number one. So what key tag number one means is that we have a media encryption key in the cache that ends in that little EF value. Then we go on to write to LBA 200 and we're gonna write 16 blocks this time using key tag 100. So that's the key that ends in the value E6. Then we go to read the data from LBA 100, and the host now has to know where that key tag is. It notes that it was written with key tag number one, but it's possible that that key could now be in a different slot. It could have gotten unloaded by the time that it wanted to do the read, and it might have had to have gotten loaded back into a different slot because of the least recently used algorithms. In this case... That key happens to still be in slot number one. So key tag number one is used to do the read. That key is then used to do the decryption. And you get your data back. So in the next example, the host makes a mistake. I mean, the hosts aren't perfect. They have bugs. Sometimes applications have bugs. Or sometimes human error comes in. In this case, they try to read LBA 200. They know they want to read 16 blocks, but they specify key tag number one. So what does the device do? It looks into slot number one, it finds an encryption key, and it does a decryption. And so depending on the implementation in the device, there's a couple of things that can happen. If you decrypt data with the wrong key, you get back garbage. That's just the way it is. You give it the wrong key, that's what you get. So if the device in fact stored its uh, ECC check values prior to doing the encryption, then when you do the decryption, you're gonna find that that ECC check value doesn't match what it should, and you're gonna think you got a media error because the device is gonna see that the the mismatch on the ECC. So there's a number of, of bad things that can happen to a host that specifies the wrong media encryption key when it tries to do the read of the data. But the point is the data is protected, and if you don't specify the right key, you don't get the right data. So then the host notices its mistake. It reissues the read, this time with key tag 100. That happens to match what it was written with. And so now the host gets their data back. We got a question, Randy. So the management of the media encryption keys in that key cache and that association with the key tag is managed by the host. The host indicates which media keys get loaded into which slots. The host can have those keys removed from a slot. It can replace the key that's in that slot. So the host is in total control of managing that. Are the slots associated with the host or with The... Slots are associated with the host or the namespace. It, it, it is per namespace. Each namespace has its own key cache that can be loaded by the host. The host is control of which keys go into which slots for each namespace. If you have multiple hosts that are both going to access the same namespace, then the assumption is that those hosts are going to know about each other, they're going to be coordinating their LBA accesses, and therefore they're also going to be coordinating the key management. Sort of like a cluster. When a cluster accesses the same namespace, the individual nodes have to have some level of coordination between them. So the same thing happens with this, this key database, this key slot management. Yes, if you want to restrict access to one at a time, then those reservations would apply here as well. You can say, uh, you know, I want to... Reservation covers the whole namespace. Right. So you can use reservations to lock out other hosts from being able to do things to that namespace. But that's not much of a shared environment when you do that. So we had another question. Um, Are those commands at the TCG layer, at the NVMe layer? That's sort of both because they are NVMe security send command and an NVMe security receive command, which then contains TCG content within the data buffers that flow back and forth so it it's sort of both it's sort of TCG, which is worse, but I yeah yeah it it works the way the same way that all the other tcg commands work yes question there uh, yes, the key cache is limited. There's only so many slots. That's what the discovery process is. If the hosts want to, they could agree to divide up the key cache. You get slot one to a hundred and I get slot, you know, one hundred and one to two hundred. Um, so there's negotiations that have to happen in, a, in any shared environment. Yes. What And especially with the data something So the question is about the value of the feature. And So yes, what you described works perfectly fine. You can have a host software implementation that encrypts the data, burning host CPU cycles to do that encryption work and send the data out in an encrypted form to the media and can keep track of all of that and manage all of that so that when it reads the data back in again, it then additionally burns more host CPU cycles to do the decryption of that data. But if we can take all of that encryption and decryption work and we can shuffle it out to the device... Then we've, we've saved our yes, it, it could be thought of as a form of computational storage that's using um, unique TCG-style APIs to yeah. I mean, there's, there's many other use cases for it. Um, I mean, one of the ones that was mentioned at the beginning was the European uh, GDPR requirements. I mean, you can imagine this going to a worst-case environment well, actually, for a storage vendor, it might be a really good solution, is that every person in the world gets their own key. I, yeah, that, tends to, that starts to make my mind explode with scaling issues, especially if each person wants to have their own unique key for each of their own types of data. I, I want to have a key from... So when I want to be forgotten on Facebook, I can say, just forget my Facebook key. That's a lot of keys to manage. Two people with one picture. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yes, question? Uh, uh, And that's what you can do with Opal. How does this compare to today's methods? So today's methods, you can either self encrypt the whole drive or you can self encrypt predefined fixed LBA ranges. And that number of predefined fixed LBA ranges is not terribly large. But now the host is stuck managing those pre-allocated spaces and it's much less dynamic. If, if you're the first one that you set up, if they only store a little bit of data, you've already pre-allocated it. If the second range, if they start filling that up with data and you realize, oh my goodness, I, I don't have enough space. What do you do? There's not a whole lot you can do. It's all pre-allocated. Uh, you're going to have to take a second range, which means you're now you're going to be using a separate key. You're going to have two keys for the same application, just because it's it stored too much data and it overflowed its its first range. It, the, the difference between the, the static nature of predefined ranges and each key, each I/O gets to define its own, so it's fully dynamic. So so the question is, is do both ends have to implement it? And the answer is no. The the data is going over the wire just like it does with the self-encrypting device today. It goes in the clear. And then the device is doing the encryption. This is an extension of the SED or the self-encrypting drive so that the data gets encrypted in the device when it receives it and the data gets decrypted before it is sent back to the host. So what the host is doing is the host is managing which key is being used for any given I.O. And the device is then doing all the work to encrypt and store the data. This is still about protecting data at rest. Yeah, if your drive falls off the back of the truck and somebody walks away with that drive, what do they get? Well, in the case of an SCD today with Opal, they get the drive and they get the key. The device is the only one that knows that key in today's self-encrypting drives. In this case, they get the drive with the data, but they don't get any of the keys. The keys are all back in the host, because when the power is lost, the keys are lost too. Question, yes? So the question is about managing the depth of the NVMe queues, 65,000 queues with 65,000 IOs on each queue. How do you coordinate that with the, the management plane access for managing that cache? Right, and, and making sure that that happens correctly is the responsibility of the host. If you want to use a key, you have to send the admin or you have to send the, the security send command to get the key out there. And then you have to wait for that command to complete before you can use the key, because that's the only way you know that the key is there to be used. There have been some uh, proof of concepts that have been done with this, which for the size of the scale that was done in those proof of concepts, there were no issues. I, I don't know if the scale, you know, it, uh, that obviously didn't scale all the way up to the 64K by 64K. Um configurations, but that the scale that it was tested, it worked well. Uh, today's self-encrypting drives, they run these encryption algorithms at line speed. They can still go full bore in both directions, reading and writing. And so the expectation... Yeah. Well, the Flash uh, self-encrypting device, they changed it from self-encrypting disk to self-encrypting device. So the Flash devices... Uh, the CPUs that are doing all of that stuff are still doing it at line speed. Correct. The key management was um, much less complex in the, the self-encrypting drives of today versus what we have here with the, the key per I.O. Yeah, you had a comment, Right. So, yeah, so the... I don't know if I can repeat all that, but some of the performance is, is dependent on, on those access patterns. The other thing will be getting the device that matches the applications. Is that if you buy a rotating device and expect to get SSD performance out of it, you bought the wrong device. If you buy a device that has a key cache of 100 elements and you expect to run applications that need 1,000 elements, in their cash, then you bought the wrong device. You should have bought one that had room for a 1,000 if that's what you really expect to run. Um, so there will be some variability in the market in terms of the number of slots uh, that are in them. And so hopefully there won't be too much variability. I'm sure manufacturers don't want to, you know, have all the different SKUs to manage and stuff like that. So there will be a couple of, likely be a couple of points where they'll have fewer or larger number of, of slots. So we've talked about some of these things already. The security send receive commands. We have the new protocol ID. Um, we still have the TCG authentication discovery process. So we have new commands for injecting the keys, clearing the keys, replacing the keys in the cache, purging the cache. Uh, you can pull the plug, but you can also send a command to just tell the device to get rid of all the keys. And we've got a number of different encryption algorithms that uh, have been included in the standard that can be used. You can specify when you load the key. So the host is responsible for the key management, everything to do with the key, the creation of the key, the loading it in the device, and the host will keep a copy of that around in its KMIP database. So just because you pull the plug on a device doesn't mean the key went away. The key went away in the device, but the key still exists in the database. And if you really want to get rid of it, you have to get rid of it in both places. That's the host's responsibility. The host has to make sure the right keys are there at the right time, that all that gets coordinated, and the host, of course, has to deal with any mistakes it makes. So right now, there's... uh, a little bit of work left, we're very close. Most of these documents are in their final review at this point, and so people are making uh, some comments. You know, we may have uh, one more spin of them, but if you're involved in the committees, take a look at them, um, because at this point, uh, they're just a few weeks to months away from, uh, from public release. So it, the positional is, so when you load it in the drive, it's loaded into a slot. Well, that's up to the host. The host could overwrite a key in a previous slot that hadn't been used in a long time. Um, it, I, I'm not sure what you mean. Will the drive reject a duplicate key tag? I don't know what a duplicate key tag is. Yep, the slot 10 in the cache. hmm. Yep, and just changes the value of the key in that slot. So there is a slot number 10. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. The, the slots are identified, and you load the contents of that slot. As far as denial of service attacks, you have to have an application that's gone through the authentication process through and knows how to. Access the key encryption keys to be able to get this stuff out over the wire. There's an awfully lot of, of other security layers that are going to make that pretty hard. So, we are uh, working on the NVMe protocol in the NVM Express group and the TCG protocol in the TCG group. Yes? It's associated with a namespace. And so if you have a PCI card with one namespace, it has one cache. If you have an array that is presenting 10 namespaces, it's going to have 10 caches per namespace. So the the last thing is that we are using the TCG architecture with the security protocol in and out commands in SCSI, the security send and receive, and the SATA devices. So this would all be possible to port to those protocols as well. Right now, um, there's not a lot of interest. Uh, There's been a couple of people in the SAS area that have started to ask the question about whether it would be appropriate. Um, But there's, uh, so far, uh, NVMe only. So we'll have to see how that develops over time. Yes. Uh, the expectation, uh, there were a couple of expectations. And as we went through the use cases, uh, the, yeah, repeat the question. Uh, why it was per namespace, why the key cache is per namespace instead of per controller. Um, the assumption was that applications would be more per namespace than per controller. Um, and there were arguments on both sides. And it, we just ended up to dis- say, yeah, it, It could have been a toss-up, and maybe, you know, I don't think it was that we um, just sort of let the loudest person win, but yeah, and we are officially out of time, so hopefully everybody's gotten their questions answered, and here's uh, sort of the the, uh, statements from TCG and NVME about who they are, and we're out of time.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have questions about the material presented in this podcast, be sure and join our developers mailing list by sending an email to developers-subscribe at snea.org. Here you can ask questions and discuss this topic further with your peers in the Storage Developer Community. For additional information about the Storage Developer Conference, Visit www.storagedeveloper.org.